You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. What can I say? You humble me. Sure great to be connected with your pastor. It's been a privilege the last three years. We were both up at Quaker Hill. You know where Quaker Hill is up at McCall? He was speaking to junior hires, and I was helping do dishes, and we got conversing and told each other our stories and thought, you know, why don't we spend some time together? We've been doing that every month for three years. Blessed my heart. Even blessed him. How about that? (laughs) Amazing. But good to be with you. I live 45 minutes to the west, so it's not too easy to come, but I, I do listen in and and uh, watch the, the videos and all of that. Um, so I stay in touch and, and pray regularly for you. So it's just fun to, to be able to be here and, and see you face to face. We're going to spend a little time in the Word. And uh, I'm going to read a passage. It's a story, one of the stories of Jesus. And um, I want to invite you to, to uh, really open your your, your uh, spiritual senses to where the Lord might take a word or a phrase out of what's written here and just impress it upon you. And, and for you to take that. This is the primary text. It's the, it's the purest source that we have of God's word. And when his spirit takes it and impresses it upon us, just a word or phrase or a thought, that's what we want to grab hold of. You know, I, I say that because often when I come to hear a message, I kind of, oh yeah, that's the reading of the scripture. I want to hear the sermon. You know, it's more kind of current. But it's coming through an imperfect vessel. So um, not, that, not that he can't get something through me to bless you. I hope he does tonight. But listen with that in mind. So if you want to turn in your, in your Bibles to uh, Mark the 8th chapter, verses 27 to 37. Jesus with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and some Elijah and others, one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He said he would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he was talking about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and reprimanded him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, and then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from the human point of view and not from God's. And then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, 
take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything more worthy than your soul? So Lord, we ask that you'll take what you've said here, combine it with what you're wanting to say today to us, that we can be faithful followers of you, of yours, and, um, and really be participants with you of bringing heaven to earth right here. For your sake we pray, amen. Part of this story has to do with expectations. Have you ever thought about the power of expectations to shape your feelings, your responses, your, your, your experience of life? Yeah, expectations are really powerful. They make a big difference. I mean, as simple as if, uh, if, a, if a, a loved one of yours said, um, I'm, I'm going out for a while and I'll be back by 10, and you're there at 10 o'clock and you're waiting, and it's 10.30, and they're not there, and it's 11, and they're not there, and then it gets to be 12. What's happening to you? You're getting all worked up and anxious and wondering and thinking, who should I call and what's happened to them? And it's all based on the expectation that they promised they'd be there at 10. If they said, I'll be there by midnight, no problem, no sweat, no expectation if they got there at midnight. So, I mean, it's just a simple illustration of what we experience all the time. Uh, many of us who, who have married know the role of expectations in bringing two sets of expectations together into a marriage, huh? Um, what the husband's supposed to do, what the wife's supposed to do. When I got married here 49 years ago, a little while, Testimony to a very, very gracious wife to have lasted that long. When, it, when we got married, we set up house and started going about our daily routines. And I, like my dad did, took out the trash and did other chores around the house. And pretty soon, within a day or two, my wife said, you just make me feel so guilty when you take out the trash. Because my dad never did that. He waited for us to serve him. And I, I wish I had learned to listen to my wife more quickly. <laughs> but I didn't. And, and she'd accuse me even to this day. There are a lot of times I don't listen to her. But I didn't then, and I kept on doing what I expected the husband should do. And so to this day, I empty the trash. But based on my expectations, I mean, she was really under guilt because of that. But she adjusted, so no problem. Now, Peter, when he, when he answered Jesus' question, you are the Messiah, it came with a freight load of expectations, didn't it? I mean, the Jews of those days had been brought up with the expectation that the Messiah was coming to save them. And their understanding of salvation 
was to save them from the cruelty of Rome, to get rid of the oppressors, to set their nation free so they could return to the glory days of David and of Solomon and become what they were meant to be and their life could be good and full and free. That was their expectation. And when he said, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to suffer and die, they couldn't hear it. If you read through scripture, I mean, you, you, we, we just saw Peter reprimanded him. Jesus, don't say that kind of thing. That's not the way it's going to be because we know you're going to conquer. And he'd, he'd of course, fed into that in the sense that he'd, he had he performed all these miracles, demonstrations. He was sent from God. He spoke with authority. It just cut to their hearts. He drew crowds, had leadership. I mean, he was showing all the signs of being one who could, could rally an army and, and send the Romans running, except he kept throwing in these zingers, I'm going to suffer and die. And you, and you look at the scripture numbers of times, and every time they could not understand it. They couldn't even understand, and he will rise again in three days. I mean, the text says they didn't understand what he was saying, and then they went on to other things. They just didn't have ears because their expectations were so locked in that they couldn't hear this. Now, it was deeper than just the expectations of the external, though. It had to do with their, their understanding, their, their core belief in what makes for the good life. I mean, you, you, you look at the examples, for instance, when uh, James and John came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, when you when you ascend to your throne, will you let one of us sit on your left and one on your right? And Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about because you need to be servant of all. Or, or here at the Last Supper, when Jesus has washed their feet, and then it says, and they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest, which of them was the greatest. What they were trying to do was to, was to fill up the cup of themselves with a sense of their importance by their position next to Jesus, by their being greater than someone else, by comparison, and by extension, by judgment, by criticism. It was their conviction, because of the nature of us as humans, to be self-oriented, self-sufficient, to believe that they had to accrue to themselves that which made them feel important, worthwhile, gave their lives meaning, significance. It was up to them to secure their lives through the accumulation of things and position and influence and, 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 and to appear well to other people in order to be admired. See all of that? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> A little too familiar to me. That's, that's, what, that's the water we swim in, isn't it? That's the culture we live in. 
uh, uh, multiple millions of dollars are spent in advertising based upon that core need and conviction that we, by the accumulation of the things they're trying to sell, will make ourselves important and secure. It's up to us to fill up that void. And Jesus was saying, no. You're to be a servant. You're to give. You're to forgive. You're not to seek here. You're to take the lower seat. See, it's so backwards, but they couldn't hear it because their core expectation was set in the wrong direction. Jeremiah summed it up well in the second chapter. This is just so graphic. 2.13, he says, uh, Jeremiah, the, the Lord says through him, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now in those days, in a semi-arid country, they, they would dig cisterns in the ground so that when the rain fell, the water would run off the roof into the cistern. They'd probably line it with clay, and, and that cistern would be a source of water for the household. And uh, so you use that as a picture of ourselves, our self, as a cistern, as a, as a vessel for holding uh, significance, worth, security. And uh, what, what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah is that that you've based your lives around this construct that you are a cistern that you have to fill. Not only is it a cistern, but it's broken and it keeps leaking out what's poured into it. And isn't that what we feel a lot of times, the frustration of, you know, we try to accumulate and we try to make ourselves look good and we try to make progress and succeed and, and it never feels like it satisfies. It's like it just goes out. It just empties out. And that's the way it's meant to be because it's not meant to work that way. Life doesn't work that way. But they, they were not to be convinced easily, and, and nor are we. But Jesus came with a different word. And we know that word. John 7. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from the innermost Parts of his being. What a, what a picture in contrast to broken cisterns, huh? Rivers of living water flowing from him through us rather than our trying to keep accumulating and filling this void. Totally different. That's his promise to us. That's his gift to us. And I suspect that many, if not all of us, have tasted at least of that river of living water. But I also suspect that most, if not all of us, have not gotten to the point where we've stopped living from drawing from our cistern either. They were probably, you know, in between. I say that because that's where I am. I'm still working on that. And the problem is that the transition from cistern living to living water living, from self-sufficiency to God-sufficiency, is a difficult transition to make. As a matter of fact, it's very painful. It requires death. Death to self. 
That's what Jesus was talking about in, in the end of this passage. I like the way uh, the message renders that. Here's Jesus when he called the crowd together with his disciples and said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Okay? You're not in control. You're not self-sufficient. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Ah, don't like that one. <laughs> Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. See, there's a true self and a false self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? Doesn't that just kind of break open some of that? To show the contrast between the way we naturally think. I mean, we don't want the suffering. We don't want to let go of control. We don't want to... I mean, it's just the way we're wired. And so to let go of that requires some, some, some hard, um, hard work. And it's not just work we, we can do. We have to come to the place where we know that we can't do any more. And that's a difficult place to come to. But the disciples, the good news here, the disciples, as deaf as they were, as blind as they were to what Jesus was trying to communicate and demonstrate to them, even, even up to and through the cross, they did not get it. And they ended up failing, falling on their faces. We know, because they denied him, they betrayed him, they, they, they went, uh, they ran away even though they wanted to and they said they would stick by him. They didn't. They fell flat on their faces, totally stripped of any illusions that they could be what they wanted to be for Jesus. Totally stripped, disillusioned. That disillusionment was exactly what Jesus knew they needed because it was the illusion that they could do it for Jesus on their own terms that kept them from his being able to do it for them. See, we're talking about the exchange life here between our trying to live our lives for Jesus as opposed to his living his life through us. See, huge difference. But getting from here to there is not easy. And it wasn't easy for the disciples. They had to go through the cross. Imagine what they, what, what, what they were feeling inside after Jesus was dead. I mean, he warned us, he said that was going to happen, but what's happened to our dream? No more saving Israel. We're lost. We've lost the last three years. It's been a waste. Let's go back, go back to fishing. Depressed, despairing. But somehow, somehow, they were available still. And Jesus came. And met them, didn't he? With grace. Yeah, on the seashore. He came to, came to him and, Peter, do you love me? Do you still love me? You know I do. Then feed my sheep. Reinstated him. See, that brokenness met by grace prepared them to be filled at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. To have that river of living water flowing. 
And do you see that, that without the brokenness of the cross, they never would have been able to receive the outpouring of the Spirit? Because there wasn't any room in them. They were so set on my control, my sufficiency. That had to be stripped away from them. And that was painful. They had lived through, in their history, the same thing. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, this art quilt. My wife made this. It's, uh, it's depicting the hope. We call it hope's promise because it's the, it's the hope of Israel. Israel went through uh, the inception of the, of the nation, the building up to the, to the glory days of David and Solomon. You know that. And then after that, uh, there was division and there was idolatry and, and rebellion and not listening to the prophets. And finally God said, that's it, and sent them off into exile. What he did essentially was to take the tree of the life of Israel and he cut it down and left a stump. Just a dead old stump. That was all that was left. And you imagine how those people in exile were feeling. And we, we see that in the record of the Old Testament. They were despairing. They were without hope. And yet Isaiah spoke the word and said, Out of the root of Jesse, out of the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse is the father of David. And, and the image there is that out of that root, which through David... And he said, through David's line will come the Messiah. Out of that stump will come the Messiah. There is still hope, even though Israel has been wiped off the face of, of the land that God had given them. He said, there's hope. Once again, life will spring forth. And so that's the whole idea here is out of this stump. Before, uh, before Easter and Holy Week, it was just the stump. And then uh, this a short sprig was added, and then today uh, this quail was added as well as emblematic of God's provision of food in the wilderness for, the, for his people in the wilderness. So uh, it, it's just a graphic portrayal of what we're talking about, that in our lives when we're cut down and disillusioned and despairing, God, God has us where he wants us. See, the, the beautiful thing here is that he doesn't waste our failures. He uses our brokenness. Those places that we, we just throw up our hands and say, what's the use? I cannot do it. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for that. But it's hard to get there. Hard to get there. The Lord took me on a several decade process of getting me to that place. He started working early in my marriage, pointing out to me the way my pride was doing damage to my wife through my critical spirit. I was critical, nitpicky, I mean to tell you. And over the years, he, he just was reprimanding me and telling me, you know, you just let go, stop judging her, just, just love her. It's not your job to change her, just love her. And I worked hard at that. And I thought I was doing pretty well. Pretty well. Turns out what I was doing was cutting weeds. I was chopping the weeds off on the surface, but I wasn't getting to the roots. See, we're talking about roots here. And along comes my 16-year-old daughter, 
who was pretty rebellious. And uh, her mother and I would discipline her. Her mother was often harder on her than I was. But her reaction to me was, was many times more negative than it was to her mother. And I, I, I didn't understand it, so I asked her one day, what, what's going on here? She said, Dad, when you discipline me, you make me feel like nothing. Can you imagine what that did to this dad's heart? What it did was it woke me up to see that the roots were still defiling my relationships. My pride was still injuring the people I loved. And I had tried for years and years to deal with it. And I finally said, Lord, I know I've hurt her, I've hurt her mother, and I'm sure I've been hurting the people I've been serving as pastor. And I give you one year, and I'm resigning the pastorate, because I can't keep inflicting that on them without dealing with this. I couldn't resign being a father or a, a, a husband, but I could resign being a pastor. And I set about during that year to work as hard as I could. I went to professional counseling. I read books. I fasted and prayed and went on retreats. And I did everything I knew to do. And nothing did it. Nothing got that root. And the months went by and I became more and more depressed. And the people of the church afterwards just said, we, we were just aching for you because I'd have to keep preaching and depressed to the point of despair. And about a month from that deadline, I had invited an old saint uh, who came and spoke. Two years before, I'd set a date, and it was a month before, and he came and he, he taught the people and he and I had conversations. In one conversation he said, you know, the men that I have mentored all had to go through times of despair in their lives before God began to use them more fully. Oh, what, what balm was that to me? If that was true to them, that there was hope, maybe there is to me. I said, that's where I am. What am I supposed to do? I was at the end of it. And he said, it's a good time to let go. Now, I'd preached about letting go and letting God. I knew about that. But I didn't know about this, the depth of it. See, it's one thing to say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll let go. I mean, we do that, don't we? And that's okay. That's the best we can do, is to exercise our will against these things. But it's not sufficient to do the kind of work we're talking about with roots when it's rooted in pride. And so he just said, that, just let go. So I, I just cried out to God. I wept from the depths of my being as I confessed my sin to him. And I just said, Lord, it doesn't matter if I'm before crowds or in a corner in obscurity. All that matters is what you want. And I met it from the depth because I'd been stripped of every, every sense that I could make anything happen anyway. And he met me with grace. I had never understood or appreciated grace until then. Grace. Oh, what a, what a marvelous gift grace is. 
And then this wise saint said, you know, you'll have to renew this about every two minutes. <laughs> I did not want to hear that. <laughs> that was too painful. Now, in a sense, he was not right because something on, on that, at that moment broke in me. There was a measure of pride that, that was extracted, was broken, so that I could stand against it more readily. But on the other hand, it wasn't totally dealt with. And so to this day, I still have to deal with pride and all that, but it's not nearly the battle it was. And uh, I'm, I'm so thankful to say that my wife looks at me with grace now and sees grace because of God's grace. So with that, I want to encourage you to, uh, to expect grace in the face of your own pilgrimage through this, wherever you are. And, and to take hold of what, what Paul summarizes in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if, if we are unfaithful, if we come to the point where we, we just want to throw in the towel, we're stripped, we're, we're in despair. If we're unfaithful, it says he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Isn't that interesting? Cannot deny who he is. I'm thinking back to Jordan's message last week when he talked about the risen Christ and us, the, the death of Christ and us identified. So we are identified. He identifies himself as us and us as him. And, and he cannot deny himself when we're, when we're one with him. He remains faithful even when we're faithless. See, that's what he did with his followers. That's what he does with us. That's the wonderful hope. Okay? So, three things I want to encourage you to do by way of practical walking this out. One is, I want you to be mindful of signs of cistern living. Of living, drawing out of the cistern. Self-sufficiency, doing it your way. Signs like fear and anxiety. Living on our own resources. We're going to be afraid that we're going to run out or not be able to take care of whatever we're afraid of. I mean, it's, it's an indication. When the river of living water is flowing and, and he's present in fullness, what do we have to be afraid of? See? Um, jealousy. You know, one of the things I struggle occasionally with is we've got my grandchildren, that we have seven grandchildren living near us. They have, uh, four of them have to another set of grandparents who are the most wonderful people. But I find myself a little jealous sometimes when they pay attention to them and not to me. That's, that's saying I'm trying to draw from my own resource to say I'm important. And it's not fair to my grandchildren that I'm expecting them to tell me I'm important. That's stupid. But it's there. So to be mindful of those kinds of things and to confess it, bring it out into the light, not just with God, but with each other. First John 1, 7, if you confess your sin, pardon me, that's 1, 8. Um, 
if you walk in the light, as he's in the light, that's what we're doing, bring these things out into the light, we'll have communion with one another, and the blood of his son will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want the power to be cleansed and broken of this stuff. We bring it out into the light with one another. Say, so James 5, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, and you'll be healed, made whole. Okay? Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. So it's a little dangerous, isn't it? Stepping out there, being vulnerable. But I know that's a part of the culture of Riverhouse, and I'm so thankful that it is because it speaks of health. So, so that's an important thing, bringing these things out. Uh, striving after position and possessions, the will to control, resentment, bitterness, anger, those things, indications of we're living out of our cistern, our broken cistern, our empty cistern, okay? Rather than out of the river of living water. And then, not just to dwell on the negative, but on the positive, give thanks for signs of living water life in you, beginning with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When you see those things, say, thank God for your grace that that's coming out of me. That you got at least that much going, even though there's still ways to go for all of us. Okay? Thirdly, lastly, is keep your focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And I want to give you a tool to do that. It's called the daily examine. And we don't have too much time to go through it but I want to walk you through five steps, five steps of the daily examine, uh, E-X-A-M-E-N. And if you want to put the first slide up here, you see down here the, uh, the website, danwilt.com, the daily examine. If you go there, you'll have all five points in an, in an outline that at the end of that blog, you'll see a link that if you... Hit that link, it'll bring up that outline. And then you can, you can uh, if, you're, if you have a phone, you can put that on your, on your screen. Save it to your screen. Then you can touch that and bring it up, and it'll give you all five points just right there. Okay? Uh, some people in the early services were taking pictures of, of these to save them, and that's great, but that's a shortcut, so you don't have to go through all of that. So the first step of the daily examine, and, and what, uh, what this author and I recommend is that you practice this four, five, six, seven, eight times a day. Now, you can do it in like a minute, or you can take 30 minutes. But the thing, even in a minute, what it does is that it refocuses your attention on Jesus in practical ways and get, you, get your mind thinking and your, your heart moving in his direction. With all the distractions we have, we need to keep coming back there, don't we? And so this is a good way to, to do that. You might even put an alarm on to, to remind yourself. But anyway, the first one is to be still. Become aware of the presence of God. And I have to say, Jordan, I appreciate the way you order worship here in a way that provides space for us to be still and to be present with God and allow God to be present with us. It's just beautiful. Keep it up. <laughs> so, so we take a, a few seconds 
uh, a minute to, to just quiet ourselves and to watch our breathing. And as we breathe in to say, Lord, you are here. And as we breathe out, and I am with you. Lord, you are here, and I am with you. And just to breathe in and out, quietly, centering yourself in his presence, coming to rest in his presence. And as you come to that place, then to moving on to, to the second step, which is to give thanks, to turn thoughts from all the worries and frustrations and you know, to-do lists and all of that to giving thanks for what is. Even in the smallest little things, as it says here, like uh, the taste of a meal, or even a difficulty, it's another opportunity to trust you. I give you thanks, Lord, for the fragrance of spring flowers. I give you thanks for the embrace of a friend as I came in here. I give you thanks. So thanksgiving has a way of rewiring our, our perspectives. Okay? So we focus in that way. And then we move on to the third step of this examine to reflect, to become aware of your emotions. Now this is an aspect that's really important for me. And I don't know about you, I was raised in a home that you weren't supposed to get angry, I wasn't supposed to doubt, I wasn't supposed to question, I was supposed to be a nice boy and be happy and you know all of that, be loving, nice. And, and so I learned to stuff feelings, to deny them to myself even. And this says, that's not healthy. We know that. And so it's a regular kind of check to say, what's going on in me that I need to be aware of? And confess, bring out into the light. Maybe it's joy. Yeah, rejoice. Maybe it's fear, anxiety, anger. I'm struggling personally with some anger right now at my wife's health issues. I'm having to work that through. And, and so I'm doing that, but I'm in touch with it. That's the important thing. What are you feeling? So confess it. Bring it out into the light. Okay? And then on to the fourth is to pray. So you look at what you're feeling, what you've been experiencing. Just choose one thing, or if you have time, a lot of things, and just pray into them. Lift them up. Trust God. Okay? And then the last one is hope. To look toward the next hours. I mean, if you're doing it regularly, maybe two or three hours, you're going to look toward and say, I'm hopeful for what God is going to do because I've centered in Him. I've given Him thanks. I've gotten in touch. I've confessed. I've prayed. So I'm going to move forward with hope. Yeah. See? So just a practical, simple little tool. I commend it to you and um, hope it's fruitful for you. So, so I want to conclude with this wonderful promise out of Philippians, because I know it's true for each one of you and for Riverhouse, and that's this. Paul says, and I say, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished in the day of Christ Jesus' return certain of it. He who began it, even in spite of us, he's going to finish it. Okay? Just keep hanging in, letting go, trusting him, doing the examine. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we're, uh, 
about the rest of us, but I'm continually amazed at how abundant your grace is <laughs> and at how much I need it. So, with that in mind, it's with confidence that I lift up each person here praying that that word that you're speaking to their heart whether it's anything I've said or not that you will bring fruit out of it and bring hope and for River House Lord thank you for what you have done and are doing here and, and are yet to do continue to shower your blessings and to bring about the fullness of your intention for your people here. Through it all, Lord, we know how much we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse Podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.